I want to introduce my wife, Sharon, to you so you get to know her as, as the family and um, you can share with them, greet them. I'm going to stand on this side because last time I ignored the side of the church, okay. this, the first meeting. So I'm going to st- stand on this side. Uh, I want to greet you, first of all, in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, I want to say what an honor and what a privilege it is for us to be here in the body of Christ. What an honor it is to be in a church that has such an understanding of the need of the gospel to be preached in every nation. There's that beautiful verse that you will know from Revelations that says that, um, I'm going to quote it my own way, but that every tongue, every tribe, and every nation will be presented before God. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. What I love about each generation is that each generation has their own responsibility to fulfill that word right there. And each generation has gone after tribes and has gone after nations, but the work is not yet done. In this generation, it's our responsibility to look for those tribes and look look for those tongues and present the gospel to them and by any means possible, bring them to the kingdom of God. There's this one short story that I want to tell you about a a tribe that we work with in the nation of Angola. It's called the Mukubao tribe. And I don't have time to show you pictures or tell you much about it. I'll just let you know the women, this is a tribe, 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 tribe kind of people. Um, The women don't wear any tops. The, the, The whole tribe walks around. The women don't wear any tops. They only wear skirts. The men only also wear a sort of skirt. Um, and so we were there a few years ago and we had the privilege to go and spend time with them. Every church group in the country of Angola that we went and we visited told us to be careful with them, not to go to them because they were a violent people. Yet, Phil, I can be gullible. I, I kind of believe what people tell me. Phil does it, which is great. So Phil ignored all the advice and said, no, we are going to them. And I'm bringing my family and my kids. Our kids were little at the time. And we head to this tribe, and we spend about a week with them. And I, can't, I can't, don't have time to tell you in how many ways God just broke my heart. Their culture, their people broke, broke my, um, our hearts in, in how how wrong they were perceived by everybody else because they, they are an isolated tribe in Angola. But anyway, we spent a whole week there with them. Uh, we sat with them under the tree, and every night they had a fire going, and we would share stories about our families, our lives, and they would share stories about their families and, and their lives. And eventually we got to the gospel part because we had to take a couple of days before getting there. Eventually we get to the gospel part, and, and we start sharing with them about Jesus and that God they had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know he had a son, that, that God had a son, that God had sent his son to the world to preach the gospel, um, to reach mankind, and that man needed to be born again. And I kid you not, as we're sharing this and we're saying, and God said that man must be born again, we were sitting by a fire in a circle underneath a tree, and they said, wait. <laughs> they had a discussion amongst themselves. They turned around to us, and they said, we have a question for you. How can a man go back into his mother's womb. And you're sitting there going, I've heard that question before. And look at that. I have an answer for you. 
And so we were able to share with them for the first time that God had a son, that he made provision that sin would be completely destroyed, that man could be born again, be made in the image of God, and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost could come and dwell inside of them. Well, now, this is many years later, we have three, uh, probably have four or five. Three bases. We have three bases, several families living, living there. And that family that we first spoke, one of them is uh, an interpreter for our team and is ministering with our, in our team over there. Mm-hmm. And um, just another story of theirs is while our uh, other team has been going out further and further and reaching this tribe, one time they were posed this question. These guys didn't know anything. They didn't know that one of our missionaries one time was preaching or teaching about prayer and she goes this whole message about prayer and in the middle of it somebody stops and says uh we have a question for you what's prayer (laughs) she went oh oh okay let's backtrack and tell you about talking to God that's all it is having a conversation so she had to teach them how to pray but in one of their meetings this um one of the questions that they were asked was this, is how big is the kingdom of God? You're talking about the kingdom of God. How big is this kingdom? And, and she said, well, why do you want to know? Well, we want to know because we want to know the size of it. Is it big enough for the whole Mukubau tribe to be in it? Well, we have an answer for that too. But this is one story. There are so many of many tribes, tongues, and nations. And let me tell you, in, that, in, that, in the last days... The Mukubau language is going to be there. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And this generation, this church, you are part of that generation. Every seed that you sow, every prayer that you pray on behalf of the nations is taking responsibility for what God has put in our generation that we must do, which is preach the gospel to the ends of the earth so that he can come. Amen. So I want to thank you for every seed that you've sown, for prayerfully, for faithfully praying for the nations. It's being heard. It's being answered. And the gospel is being preached in the nations. Amen. She's a better preacher than me, so you're just going to have to deal with me from now on. Sorry. Um, hallelujah. Um, so good to be here to share with you. I have a lot to share and a lot to impart, um, being that I'm in such a long relationship with you. There's a lot to share, a lot of things to, to, to cover. Um, but I will say this to start with, um, for those that are here, we, we are in an apostolic missionary organization. And um, we, we also train missionaries um, for our organization. So we have a full training division to equip people, establish them, and then get them fully funded in assignments around the world. And so if you this morning are, are um, looking at your life, especially as a young person, and looking at the careers presented before you, missions is a career. Yeah. Full on the best dream job in the world, actually. Right. Um, but, um, and, we, and, and we are one of the finest um, organizations, I believe, that are in this country to, to take a, a person that is an enlisted, an enlisted um, resource out of the church, equip them, establish them, and put them in a career. 
in a successful and a solid team that's, um, that's winning. So praise God for that. Amen. Um, I'm going to, let's pray this morning before I share. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. We thank you for this church. Thank you for your purpose. Thank you, God, that every person that walked into this building this morning would not walk out the same way in Jesus' name, but you touch us all. Amen. Praise God. Um, I want to start um, sharing out of Acts chapter 17, 34. Um, I'm actually not quite used to preaching three sermons the same back to back. I can do three different sermons, you know, phase one, two, and three, and, and then... Um, but I kind of decided this morning what I'll do is I'll just improve. Right. <laughs> so, so the guys who came early get like, I was testing you. Yeah. It was like just running. <laughs> then we improved to the second and third service. Now those guys are going to get the perfect sermon, you know. <laughs> um, but I want to start here um, with the same verse I started with earlier on, um, and it is, it is basically this. It says, verse 34, However, some joined him and believed, among them Dionysus, the Oropagite, and a woman by the name of Damaris. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Paul, the legend, the anointed, the great articulator of the finished work of Jesus, when he arrives into Athens, stands on this this rocky outcrop called the Oropagus and declares the kingdom of God with all of the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the knowledge of the finished work. And when he closes his sermon, only two people respond to his message. And it is, is Dionysus, the Oropagite, and Damaris, the lady mentioned there. Um, and the backstory of this is Paul, Paul was in Asia Minor at the seven churches of Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, and Antioch, and he was rotating, and then God gave him a dream. Remember the dream? And in the dream, there was a man that said, come to Macedonia. So he, he marshals his team and says, we go to Macedonia, people. It's west of Asia Minor. But you have to go to the coastline of Ephesus, jump on a boat, and you've got to make your way through some island chain and get to, the, to this port and then overland to a place called Philippi, where he believed that the man in the dream was. So off they go, stack documented, cross, get to the port, overland to Philippi, gets to Philippi, expecting the man in the dream, and who does he meet? He meets a woman by the name of Lydia. So the man in the dream was actually a woman. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I always think about, imagine, imagine if it was me. I was getting there, I'm going, wait, hold on, lady, step aside. Where's the man? Right, right. You know, as a, as a minister, as a, as a visionary of the things of God, you never step anyone aside. It doesn't matter what gender they are. It doesn't matter if, if, a, if a bald, short, 
dwarf comes to you in the dream, and when you get there, it's a giant female. It doesn't matter. You wouldn't discriminate by size, by outward appearance, by any form of gender. It is a human being born of a woman, qualified for all of the glory of God to come on their life. So here's Lydia. Paul says, oh, the man in the dream, it's a woman. Her name's Lydia. He baptizes Lydia in a stream. We stood at the stream, sat there, and Sharon and I did the trip. We went to Philippi to where Paul stood in Macedonia and went to the stream that he baptized Lydia in. And it is told that from that baptismal, baptismal font, when Lydia was baptized, the gospel came through Lydia to the whole of Europe, my ancestors, wow. Wow. to me. Thank you, Lydia. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Paul. For not looking at this lady and saying, you're not worthy, you're not in the dream, you don't, you're disqualified by gender, size, outward appearance, find me somebody else. The gospel came through her, came to me, through me went to others, went to the Mukabau tribe, of which not even the Angolan, the country of Angola recognized them as a nation, so much so that they never ever translated their language into any form of education. No mathematics. No literature, no ABCs, nothing. Left six nations totally exempt from any form of education until we arrived. We've translated the Jesus film into Mukabao. We are, Wycliffe have employed us to do the language in, into, into a, a written language. I mean, until we got it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Lydia. So then he gets down and he, and he goes from Philippa, makes his way down to Athens. Gets to Athens, and in Athens it was, it was um, the center of the Greek uh, religion, the, the, the Roman Greek religion. And Athens was the temple of Athena, which had the 12 Greek gods, all architect. I don't know if some of you have been there, I see some nodding. There's, some, there's these statues of the 12 gods on the temple. And as you stand on the Oropagus, this rock in front of it where Paul preached, you look up and you see the 12 gods all down on you. It's epic stature. So Paul didn't go up to, the, to Athena. He stayed on the Oropagus rock outcrop and preached this message um, that is known as um, um, the, the addressing addressing the Oropagus, the addressing of the Oropagus. And he preaches there, and only two people respond to this amazing anointed man. You know, it's like only two respond. What do, what do you think Paul was thinking? You, you know, if it is the modern era, we'd be going, oh my gosh, what a, the meeting tanked. <laughs> the meeting tanked. I mean... Nobody, nobody welcomed me and, and with, with some limousine. I didn't get a limousine. I didn't get the man of God, someone carrying my Bible to, an, uh, to a pulpit, you know, giving me some shine in my shoes, polishing me, giving me some glory, and then seeing some huge results and some applause of man, and you're amazing, such anointing. Well, you know what I mean? Paul, he, his estimation of success was in no way in that realm. That rocky outcrop, we actually went to Oropagus. I stood there, you know. I was only interested in the Oropagus. I wasn't too interested in the Temple of Athena. 
because we were following Paul. So when we stood on the Oropagus, it's still to this day, it has no historic relevance to, to the tourist trade. The tourist trade missed the Oropagus, and they go up to the Athena because that's the epic um, statues of history. For us, the most important thing was get to me through that mound of rock. Still weeds everywhere. There's no chairs. There's no stools to sit on. Nobody's made anything out of it. I just imagine Paul preaching there. The word of God. And everyone else missing it. They're just missing it. They're just going, all the tourists are missing this epic, historic moment in the world. Why? Because, because Dionysus came to Christ. Now, Dionysus was a lawyer from Alexandria, Egypt. And it is, it is told that, that what happened actually was Dionysus was in Alexandria when Jesus died. About, I don't know how many years prior, it was like 15, 20 years, 30 years before this. He was in Alexandria. And he remembered the day because the sun eclipsed for three hours. And the earth shook. And in Alexandria, they were told something happened in Israel that was so significant that it, that it eclipsed the sun and shook the earth. He remembered it. When Paul preached at Oropagus, Dionysus was in Athens. And he recognized that this was the Messiah because he was there when the sun eclipsed and came to Christ. Well, Dionysus came to Christ and got so radically converted, the power of God touched him, the fire of God touched him, that he, he dedicated his life to the things of God from his career. Dionysus is today the patron saint of Athens. From that moment at that rock, something in his life carved his name in the planet. Dionysus took out the Greek religion off the earth and never to return. Through the preaching of the gospel, took out the worship of all of those 12 Greek gods. To this day, there is no worship. There is a Greek Orthodox church. I mean, it's also like a little bit religious. But it went from Dionysus to the Greek Orthodox Church. No longer the worship of them. Paul arrived at a location, refusing to make estimations by what his five senses saw. Let the power of God touch simple people and their submission to it. And he knew that all he needed to do was release it into individuals, and it'll be enough. He soldiered on to Corinth, where he stayed for, I think, two or three years. It's it's about uh, a two-hour drive away. And so I want to share these things because you're in a missions week, and the power of a missionary, the power of a steward, now, the word missionary, I've got to pause there a little bit. I, 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 I sometimes hard, it's hard to use that word in the modern era. People call, call us, oh, you're a missionary. As soon as they say that, I go, what do you define that as first? Because there's a difference between an apostolic missionary, one who believes that the, that the transforming element in the world 
is the words of Jesus. Apostolic missionary. I have no other opinion. You can, you can send me six containers of Tom's shoes to give out for free. It will make no difference to the nations. Zero. Because I believe that the word makes the difference. That's my definition of a missionary. So we go, oh, you're a missionary. Do you have an orphanage? It's like, no, I have words. That's all I have. We support lots of orphans. But that doesn't define me. You know what I mean? Oh, do you drill wells? I deliver words, people. Right. We have drilling rigs. Right. We fix boreholes. It doesn't define me. So I have to redefine sometimes when I say missionary. But the power of a steward of the gospel is that they see the word of God in effect in people's lives and in the person in front of them. Right. In the person in front of them. Not the crowds. Right. It's the person in front of you. I shared a story last night about us going into the DRC Congo for the first time ten, seven, probably 10 years ago when we were launching into southern Congo. And it was a, we didn't need to go into Congo. We were so busy in every country around us. The team came to me and said, we need to go into DRC because the Lord is leading them. And I was like, are you sure? We don't have enough people for the task we got at hand. They said they're going to go. They went in. We flew them into Labambashi. They took a taxi from Labambashi to, to uh, Likasi, three-hour drive. The taxi driver, they chose the taxi driver because he could speak English, French, and Swahili. So they went through the taxi ranks, found a taxi driver that could speak those three languages, and then said, you will be a, we'll hire you to drive us, and you will interpret for us. Born again or not, doesn't matter. Just talk do whatever we tell you to do. We need to speak out whatever we tell you. This taxi driver, his name was Gaston. He was the man in front of the team. He was Dionysus. He was Lydia. They focused all the attention. They didn't go through the phone book and go for the best person, best looking, best articulate, best Christian super, superhero that they could find. They went for the very first person they found. Gaston got born again followed our team, became the taxi driver on every event. Eventually, he became a lawyer. We put him through law school, became a lawyer. We hired him as our lawyer. He represented us in Congo, did all our paperwork, represented us before the police and all the, the very difficult uh, corruption elements in that country. Um, Gaston eventually died in a motor car accident about six years in, and... Um, and then we thought, we thought um, that was really a difficult situation because he had all our paperwork at the time of his death. At a motor car accident, all, we lost all our paperwork. In Congo, they don't have records online. You carry real paper with real colored stamps. And if you don't have it, you start from scratch. And it's tens of thousands of dollars per event. I mean, it's just very expensive to, to launch permanently with work permits in those nations. Well, he died. And we hired his cousin, put his cousin through law school. Um, years later, um, it was like two years ago, I got a call and said, um, they said, you won't believe this. Now, in Congo, if you don't know the governors, the governing authorities, you, have, you just go nowhere. You'll have your hamster wheel, but they will just snuff it out 
in, in seconds you'll be gone, they'll steal your cars and whatever you got. It's really hard in southern Congo because all the mines, it's the copper belt, there's the gold, there's the copper, there's the steel, there's every type of mineral in the ground. The Chinese are in there and, and they... But if you don't know the governor, the, the governor of southern Congo at the time was a, name, a guy by the name of Kantumbi. Kantumbi was so rich, is, yeah, is so rich or was so rich, um, that uh, he had his own airline with 747s called, called Kantumbi Air. He had a mansion in West Palm Beach. He had money and equipment all around the world. And he was a warlord and he was governor for 30 years. And if you didn't know him, you got nowhere. And, um, and we knew we couldn't get to Kantumbi. There's no ways we could get to him because we're going to ch- shake the nation. You know, we're going in with missionaries are always saying, we're going to shake the nation. So we have to stay, shake it from the top to the bottom. And um, so after, after Gaston died, our taxi driver, the one we met, the only one we knew when we arrived, the first guy, he said, you won't believe what's just happened after his death. He said, what happened? Gaston's older brother. I had never met him. I didn't even know he had an old, I knew he had brothers, but you know, it's like Africa. You, it's like, who is your brothers? I mean, there's lots of them out there, and they're all over the show. Like, you don't get to meet them all at dinner. Um, his older brother has just been voted in as governor of southern Congo and took Kantumbi out. Of which, just two years prior, we had buried his younger brother, Gaston, and paid for his funeral. In Africa, this is big deals. To win, like you, you meet the person at the airport in a taxi rank, and God, through him, gives you a nation. That's how it works. Imagine if we had gone to taxi and gone, don't even talk to me, taxi driver. You're worthless. Get me to the minister, the people of, of, of importance. doesn't work because the, the word of God is too powerful. It takes anybody. It takes anybody. You can say, oh, the, I, I disqualified at school and no one thought I was great. It doesn't matter. You put yourself before God. Let the word of God touch you. He will take you. You just got to be enlisted. You just got to enlist. You just got to get in the ranks. I'm enlisting, Lord. I'm just going to, you know, I was in the army. <laughs> I was a military soldier in the South African army, and we were enlisted by um, conscripted. We were conscripted. Like, you didn't have a choice, you know? And so they chose us. They chose the rugby teams. Rugby is like a, like a football kind of sport. So the first teams in rugby, they just took the first teams out of every school, and they sent them to the special forces. So I just got enlisted to special forces. And then um, every now and then they would, they would slip in. They would just choose randomly out of the schools and just send people. And when we got sent, they bust, they trained us to this one location. And in the selection were some people who were not made for war. They were just not made for war. This first guy, he's, I won't mention his name because he's just, he was a legend. But he was like way overweight. His bags were full of food. It's just food. And I looked at him, I was like, the first thing we did, they, met, they got us to the city and they said, they said, run from the train station to the military base. And the trucks drove away empty. It was about five miles. For me, nothing. But for this guy and all his food. So I took his bags. It was day one. I took his bags and he was just running next to me and I carried his bags. I carried his bags for the whole first year. 
I had my rifle would, would come over my chest. I would take his rifle. I would tie it to the back of my bag. And, he, and then we'd carry his bags together. So he didn't run his bags. This wasn't made for war. But then we went to war. By that time, he had lost all his weight. And he was a soldier. And we, and I'll tell you what, interesting thing is, we went in, 27 soldiers into the war. Angola, it was, a, it was, this, it was the end of the Cold War. We were fighting Russia and Cuba in Angola. In a, in, a, in a conventional war, tanks, Russia had 300 tanks, and, and we went in to oppose them. And 27 of us went into the war. And it was a, a four-month battle, uh, and it really lasted nine months. But it was four months on the ground in the trenches. 27 of us went in. Only four of us finished. Cecil was one of them. You know what I mean? He was one of them that finished. So you enlist. It's like the kingdom. You enlist with your hubbly-bubbly little body that you got, all unfit and all messed up as it is with all of your drama. Let the Word of God touch you. Let the power of God fill you. You qualify for all of the glory and inheritance of God in your body and the transforming power of God, and you will end up being an instrument in the hand of God. That's the way it works. Um, I was sitting um, one day, you know, you, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit as Pentecostal, if, this, if you come to this church and, and, and maybe you just drove past one day and you just drove into the parking lot and, and you happened on this great pastor and his wife and here you are, you just, by luck you landed here. Good find, people. Good find. <laughs> You could have landed in some religious church, some religious pastor who's following some script, some hymnal. And, it, and it's a hamster wheel of energy that goes nowhere. Us Pentecostals, filled with the Spirit, pressing into God, still stuck in the upper room, haven't left that theology haven't left the theology of the upper room to some more clever stuff. Right. You know, we're still in the upper room. Yeah. We have a strong theology and a strong duology. Get the job done. Us Pentecostals always end up in the key positions. I'm just telling you. Yeah. A couple of years ago, about six years ago actually, we're sitting at our base at Rapid 14, Livingston, Zambia, and we got visited by... A man by the name of Hikayenda Hichalema. And that's a name. If you can say that, I'll give you free coffee. You get a free cup of coffee. Hikayenda Hichalema came to see me. And he's a businessman in Zambia. And he said to me, I need help. I said, what? He says, I'd like to run for president. And, um, and, but I need money. I need about $10 million to campaign. So I need help. So I like listened to him. I said to him, listen. I don't have 10 million for you. And no capitalist nation has got 10 million for you. So the Americans, the Canadians, the Brits, the Australians, they're not going to give you 10 million because they're capitalists. They're going to ask return on investment. 10 million to a campaign. And then you fail or you win. Then how are you going to pay them back? You're going to have to corrupt the books to find 10 million to repay your campaign. He said, the Chinese will give you 10 million. The Arabs will give you 10 million, and they will find ways to get to make you pay 100 million in return out of gold mines and forestry and 
road contracts and whatever. I said, don't take the 10 million. Trust me, we'll put you in office. And we created a runway for his political campaign at my house with my staff and prayed over it and put it in action. And he won the next election, but it got stolen. Totally. I mean, it was the, the, he won by numbers. Someone broke into the electoral commission overseen by the United Nations, tampered with the numbers, got caught and arrested, was sitting in prison the very next day. And the media jumped in and it was gone and they, they inaugurated the other guy as the president. I mean, it was stolen. It was fine. We've seen that before. Seen that since too. But um, <laughs> for me in America, I was like, oh, no, no, this happens to me every day. I mean, this is like, <laughs> takes a miracle. So the, four years later, continued. He just won in August of last year by landslide victory as the president of Zambia. Wow. The nation I'm in. So you, us Pentecostals are sitting, minding our own business half the time, believing God, and people are coming to us that are simple people. But when the power of God touches them, the word of God together, the faith of the church touches them. Next thing you know, nations are beginning to move and shake and change. Hallelujah. So I want to, I want to, um, I want to close today. Um, by sharing out of Matthew chapter 4, um, something that happened that I always observed and um, kind of thought about. It's a situation where Jesus says to Peter and Andrews, verse 18, he says, follow me. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. A radical situation. Can you imagine your sons are working in your business that you have built for them and some, someone loitering around, <laughs> loitering around past you says to your sons, follow me, and they up and leave them, you yeah. as a father. I'm telling you, I would tackle that person. I would take you down. You are going down if you're going to come to my family and take my kids. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? It's not happening on any day. This situation, that's why I read it. I was like, it's just like crazy. What went on? Was actually something actually very interesting went on there. And I have to share with you because I believe there's a call within this congregation. There's a, there's a call. And it's, it's, um, it's on some of you individually and it's also on you as a church. And you need to know this as a church because you are members and he's going to take you on a journey. And it's going to be like six flags. <laughs> I don't know. It's just not going to be a normal little trek, little trek, little, uh, little stroll. You're not going on a stroll with, with artists and Stacy. So here's what actually happened. Um, Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis had a certain word in their language, which was follow me, only used for one situation. And in Hebrew, the word was, was excuse me if you're a scholar and I pronounced this wrong, but it sounded like this, lechach harai, lechach harai, only used in one place. 
And it was used when, when a student in the, in the Jewish scholar schooling system went through two, their first two schooling schools, which was the one that went from like four till seven, then from seven to 13 to their bar mitzvah. In those two schools, they would eliminate all the, all of the, the not so smart people. That's us, by the way. Um, they would eliminate all the smart people, and then you would get these really smart kids, and they would be, they would be earmarked, and they'd go through the next schooling. And at the end of that second school, there would be the bar mitzvah, and the rabbis would come in and choose one or possibly two out of the school that would follow the rabbi till they were 30, till they're 30 years old. So from 13 to 30. Now remember, Israel didn't have mathematics, geography, history. They only had the Torah. In the Torah was mathematics, geography, history. You only learned the Torah. And the highest office in the nation in the political realm was rabbi. So there wasn't a government. There was the church. There was the, there was the Judaic system. The highest office in the nation was the rabbi. So when the rabbi came to the second school and he said to the student, Lechacharai, it was huge for the family. You were, you were the smartest, most qualified, most perfect student. And you get to be the rabbi after 30 years. You're the highest call in the nation. Well, guess what? Only one person out of every class. Guess what? You know, in that class, I can guarantee you it wouldn't have been me. <laughs> every one of you go where? Go work for your parents. Go to the nets. Go to the family business. So here's two people who never got the nod at school. Not so sharp. Not so awesome. Not as smart as everybody else. Disqualified. Naughty. Because, you know, all the naughty, they were the naughty guys. They were the naughty ones. They were the ones that jokesters. And, and you, you just never qualified for the, for, for the call. He walks past them. And he says, perfect, qualified, perfect. It doesn't matter what everyone else has said. It's not by your performance. I'm not grading you by your school. I'm not looking at what every person said concerning you. I'm just going to say perfect because of something that's about to happen. The father of of Peter and Andrew. Tonight we party. The kids got the call from the rabbi. You know, that's what happened. That's why he, he never daft tackled Jesus. Because Jesus qualifies you. He cancels the word of man over you. All of your educators of this system that has disqualified you is canceled by Jesus and his word. And then there is the power of God. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. It's not just words. It's not just fantasy. It is actual power. That when you take, in, when you enlist, when he says, L'chacharai, and you enlist, there's a duology, people. Duology. 
You have to enlist. You have to agree. You have to say, I receive your word as the word of God. You have to agree that only God is true and every man is a liar. You know, unfortunately, you're going to have to say, all of my opinions are just mine and they're all wrong. Until I follow him. He is only right. You must follow these words. The enlisting is enlisting. Imagine you go to your corporal in the military. Corporal, whatever you tell me, I'll just think about it for a while. Consider if I want to do it or not, because my opinions still matter. Have any of you been in the army? Here's what happens. You get some really nice language and you learn things about your mother you never knew. You know, it's like the language. You cannot... There is, when the authority in your life comes into your life and God comes in, you submit to that authority. And in that submission and enlisting comes the power of God that transforms you. And man, from that moment on, you cannot predict that person. Cannot predict. You are, you are predictable up until then. Then you'll be sitting on a chair in Livingston, Zambia. With some hitchalema comes up to you. Help me. Okay. I know nothing. What do I know? I'm just a Pentecostal. I'm not a political genius. I don't know how to set campaigns for, for, for political candidates. What? I just started praying tongues. Yes, I can do that. Let's figure it out. Next thing you know, he's in. Right now, we are working with the, the new candidate for the, for the nation of Haiti been at my office. We set the runway for his campaign. Haiti, what a mess. If we win, we're going to take Clinton Foundation out. This South African. This little surfer. Take them out. Thank you. Goodbye. New people in, and we'll make a difference. Why? Fire of God. Transforming power of God. A simple person sitting at a well in Philippa got baptized, some Dionysus at some rock chewing gum, looking like a lawyer. Can you imagine? Scrutinizing, figuring out mathematical equations until the power of God touched him. Submit. Someone submitting to God. So praise God. This morning, I believe God is not only calling this church into a level of enlisting for transformation of your Citrus County and beyond, but there are people here that his hand is on that he is asking you to enlist, to you to, 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 to take the call, for you to lay aside the opinion of man and follow his. Someone's here this morning. Praise God. So would you stand with me? Put your hand on your chest. Father, I thank you for every single person in this building. As they lay their hands on their chest, I cancel the opinion of man over their lives. In Jesus' name. I cast off all anxiety and fear, gone from every person. Every level of anxiety and fear that comes to you is gone right now, never to return in the name of Jesus. You are qualified, you are perfect, you are chosen, you are selected by God this morning for His favor to come on you through the free gift of His grace, and you qualify for it, and it's on you right now in Jesus' name. Thank you for your anointing, Holy Spirit. You touch every person right now that they never be the same from this moment on in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Do you receive that?
You received that this morning. Hallelujah. Praise God. Love you. Thank you, Pastor Otto.